You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A phishing attempt against the Democratic National Committee turns out to have been a poorly coordinated red team exercise. Apache patches a remote code execution vulnerability in struts, another exposed AWS bucket, Remco's remote administration tool is being abused by black hats, dark tequila goes after customers of Mexican financial institutions, the Lazarus Group is back, and it's getting into Max for the first time. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 23, 2018. In a week that's seen Microsoft, Facebook, and Twitter shut down influence operations from Russia and Iran, and warnings last week that China and North Korea were also interested in hacking U.S. elections, it's understandable that many people are quick to see foreign influence. And it seemed late yesterday that there'd indeed been another election hack, this one a phishing campaign directed against the U.S. Democratic National Committee, the DNC. The DNC's CSO briefed party leaders, informed the FBI, and took a whack at the administration for not doing enough to protect voting infrastructure. It emerged overnight, however, that there was in fact no hack. It was a false alarm produced by a poorly coordinated phishing awareness exercise. Security firm Lookout reported a fake login page for VoteBuilder that appeared to be after credentials for the DNC's voter database. The DNC ran with the false alarm. As Lookout has since tweeted correctly, you don't know an alarm is false until you investigate. But the snafu, as CNN called it, is embarrassing. It's good to be aware of security, but it's also good to be aware of it in ways that don't turn a fire drill into a federal case. It's also worth pointing out that this is a good case study in the perils of attribution. DNC CSO Bob Lord, a Yahoo alumnus who distinguished himself by mopping up that company's big breaches, all of which occurred before he was brought in to fix things, was in full cry yesterday. He denounced hacks left, right, and center, demanded action and more administration support, and congratulated his team on stopping the fishing in its tracks. Others piled on, like Representative Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, who tweeted that, quote, this hacking attempt comes just weeks after the at-house GOP voted against funding for voting protections. Our intel community warned us about this, and now it's happening. This isn't fake news. It's a real attack on our democracy. We need to act. End quote. The administration, in the person of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, simply congratulated the DNC on reporting the case to the FBI, which is, she said, the right thing to do. But consider, if you will, how this might have played out if victims of phishing generally had legal authority to hack back. Senator Whitehouse, call your office. This isn't a political comment, by the way. Democrat CSOs are probably neither more nor less chicken littleish than any others, and Senator Whitehouse has bipartisan sympathy in Congress. But everyone, whatever their political inclinations, might well pause and think about the dangers of harem-scarum attribution. We're so disposed to see cyber Pearl Harbor that we overlook the opposite possibility of a cyber Tonkin Gulf incident. No one's quite sure yet who ordered up the red-teaming fishing test, but people are pointing on background toward the Michigan branch of the Democratic Party. 
If that turns out to be true, then, hey, just chalk it up to experience and add the Michiganders to the list of bad guy capitals. Pyongyang, Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, Lansing. If they get to Grand Rapids, well, then Katie, bar the door. Phishing campaigns remain a reliable way for adversaries to find their way into your systems, to trick employees to perform an action, click a link, pay a phony bill, or transfer money to an offshore account. Oren Falkowitz is CEO at Area One Security, a company that specializes in phishing prevention. In some ways, phishing campaigns remain uh, the same as, as they've always been. It's an attempt to lure a user to take some sort of action unwittingly, whether it's to click on a link that might drive them to a, a website where they might reveal a username and password or to download a file which might infect their computer or increasingly to not click links or download files, but just to engage in the transfer of, of data at the request of another or uh, transfer of financial assets uh, at the at the request of, of someone else. You know, what does evolve is that attackers leverage authenticity uh, as the key kind of lure uh, in, in getting uh, individuals to, to respond to their phishing campaigns. And these lures uh, around authenticity come in two primary forms. The first is uh, primarily the 100 largest brands or companies in the world. Their logos uh, and their, uh, their corporate assets are used to make the campaigns look authentic. So it's common to see uh, the links that people click look like logins to, to Google or to look like logins to Dropbox or to your financial institution. And the, separate, the second type of authentic lure is to leverage the organizational dynamics that we all play within to make it appear as if the CEO from your company is sending you an email or a financial officer uh, is requesting information from you. And, you know, if you really think about our organizational dynamics. It's very hard if you work at, for instance, the Walt Disney Corporation to receive an email that you think comes from uh, the CEO, Bob Iger, uh, and to not respond because you think it looks uh, it looks funny. And so we see that in 100% of the time when users fall for phishing campaigns that they're trying to do their jobs correctly. That's why they continue to be the root cause in over 95% of uh, cybersecurity incidents. Now, is it common that you find that if someone does fall victim to something like this, or are these incidents underreported? Is there an embarrassment factor? I think certainly that's the case. That uh, in some some instances, folks might have a, a suspicion that they've done something wrong, but primarily, folks are unaware uh, that 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 has happened. Uh, it's all happening at network speed. The the transfer of this. Uh, and ultimately, until there's damage, I don't think people are realizing that uh, that something has gone wrong. And so what are your recommendations for organizations to better protect themselves against these attacks? There's two primary things. To start with, you know, the, the, today the cost of being a bad guy uh, on the Internet is just really good business. And so we need uh, generically to be increasing those costs and make it more difficult for uh, attackers to just be sending out emails and hoping one of, one of them lands and someone transfer them $50,000. That's a really good day uh, of work. Uh, you know, if you think about an hourly basis, that'd be great for, for you and I. And the second is the, that uh, organizations need to invest in technologies that are comprehensive and specifically focused on stopping phishing. You know, historically, organizations have uh, invested in anti-spam technologies, which is not the same as phishing. And those anti-spam layers consistently uh, miss on these phishing campaigns. They're consistently bypassing those layers. 
education and awareness programs are totally ineffective uh, at uh, at stopping the inevitability uh, of the click. And as part of layered defenses, the organizations need to start investing in technologies that uh, are special purpose designed for phishing and to be comprehensive. You know, uh, on one level, many people believe phishing is an email problem. And while email is a primary vector for these phishing campaigns, it's not the only vector. A large number of them uh, persist across the World Wide Web. Uh, and so there's a need for comprehensiveness in this approach as well. That's Oren Falkowitz from Area One Security. Apache Struts has been found vulnerable to remote code execution. Security firm Semmel described the issue, which the Apache Foundation is addressing with a patch. As Semmel points out, remote code execution exploits have the potential to work great damage, so they encourage patching. Surveillance toolmaker SpyPhone left terabytes of data exposed in a misconfigured AWS S3 bucket. The exposure was disclosed to Motherboard by a security researcher who wishes to remain anonymous for fear of legal retaliation. Motherboard reports that 3,666 phones were tracked in the database, which contained things like texts and selfies. The security site Have I Been Pwned also looked into what the researcher found, and they concluded that 44,109 email addresses were among the material compromised. SpyPhone told Motherboard that they're investigating and that they're thankful the researcher who found the bucket had good intentions. But again, do look at your buckets. Cisco's Talos Security Unit reports that breaking security's Remco's remote admin tool is being exploited by hackers. Breaking Security, a security software outfit based in Germany, says its tool is legitimate, that they don't want it misused, and that they'll revoke the license of those who abuse it. But Talos isn't entirely convinced. Remcos is widely discussed and traded in gray or black markets. Researchers at Kaspersky Lab are tracking what they call Dark Tequila, a financial fraud campaign targeting customers of Mexican financial institutions. It's sophisticated and long-running, apparently since 2013. The attack is multi-stage and modular. It has an info stealer that harvests passwords from browsers, a keylogger, and a service module that keeps it running properly. The two known infection vectors are spear phishing and injection by USB device. And finally, the DPRK seems to be branching out. Kaspersky Lab finds North Korea's Lazarus Group pushing Mac malware in Operation Apple Juice. The campaign affects Macs, which is new for Pyongyang's hackers, and its malware poses as a legitimate appearing app from a cryptocurrency trading software vendor. When the victims take the bait, they're infected with the fall chill rat. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
upkeep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. He's also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, welcome back. Hi, Dave. So uh, we got an article here. This comes from Digital Content Next uh, online service, and it's called Google Data Collection Research. Hmm. And uh, this is research that was done by Professor Douglas C. Schmidt. He's a professor of computer science at Vanderbilt University. And uh, they're looking at uh, how much data Google collects from their users on mobile devices and contrast that over what kind of data is collected on iOS devices. I must admit, Joe, I'm trolling you a little bit here. <laughs> I was going to say, you, <laughs> Dave, you're trolling me, aren't you? Yes. yes uh, for, for those of us who aren't uh, regular listeners of the CyberWire, Joe uses uh, Android devices, and I prefer iOS devices. That's this right. comes up more often than it probably should. And Dave often likes to compare apples to Googles. There you go. So what, 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 do, we, what do we know from this research here? Well, we do know that, that, that you're correct, that Android devices... Even when they're idle and stationary, communicate a lot more with the Google services uh, than the Apple devices communicate with Apple. Right. What Professor Schmidt found is that uh, a lot of this information is location data. Yeah, thirty-five uh, percent of the data. Thirty-five percent of the traffic is location data. Right. Uh, I don't know why it feels necessary to do that. Uh, we use that location data in our in our family so that we we can track where everybody is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are under no disillusion that Google also has access to that location data. Hmm. Before we started, you were talking, you and I were talking about this, and one of the one of the key points that you brought up is that Apple and Google are in very different businesses. Right, right. Uh, Which they brought out in the research here as as well. Right. Uh, Apple is in the business of selling people hardware, mm-hmm. and they are very uh, user focused. And Google is in the in the business of a search engine and advertising and marketing. Right. Uh, and they provide some remarkably good services to users for free. For example, Google Docs, which mm-hmm. which I use, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of advertising on it. Right. Um, it's a great tool, but I'm under no disillusion uh, of what that entails, that Google has access to every single thing that I type up there. If I have something, some intellectual property I don't want shared with Google, I don't put it on that service. Hmm. For example, my password safe file which I uh, have started protecting now with a physical YubiKey, I don't keep that on Google at all. Uh, I keep that on uh, another cloud provider service. uh, That shall go unnamed. That shall go unnamed, (laughs) I guess, yeah. Right, right. Uh, But it is one of the big 
big three or four or five ones. But um, yeah, because I don't think that I'll, I'll say it's Microsoft. Um, <laughs> I don't think my, Microsoft's business is selling me software and cloud services, right? Uh, not selling me advertising. So they, I don't think they're mining my data, or if they are, they're not mining it to the extent that Google is. Google is definitely mining my data. Yeah, I know they're doing that. That's what they do. Yeah, it's interesting statistics they had here. They said uh, an Android phone, a stationary dormant Android phone, uh, contacted Google 340 times during a 24-hour period. That averages out to 14 communications per hour. Yeah. Um, and uh, an idle iOS phone didn't communicate back at all. You had to be using the iOS phone for it to be sending that sort of data back. Right. Interesting. So it's it's a it's a consumer choice. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I understand consumer advocates will say most people don't know that this is a choice they're making, and that's true. They right. don't know, and that's kind of why we talk about this and why why Professor Schmidt has published this is because people should know this. This is something they should they should be making this as a conscious conscious decision. Right. They shouldn't just be going, oh, it's free. That's great. And like we always say, if something's free, you're the product. Yeah. And yeah. Tim Cook says that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the research is called Google Data Collection. Again, we found this on Digital Content Next. Uh, so it's it's worth a look. And uh, Joe, as always, you're, you're a good sport. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. All right. Thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.